Hello, welcome to the Rusty Nile podcast number one. Now, if you're listening to this, there's a fair chance it's because maybe you have subscribed to the podcast feed of my Substack. Now, there's a lot of questions that four of you might have to ask, um, and I won't be able to address them all the time. But I, I just want to quickly say what this is. What this is. This is a podcast where I read out some posts from my Substack from the previous month, and I talk about them. And that's all it is. And I might talk about other stuff too. And um, the reason I'm doing this is a, there's a couple of reasons. The first reason is that when I started my Substack off. Um, which is uh, Rusty Nile, but it's nilosullivan.substack.com because I, I don't have the foresight to brand properly. But when I started out, the only way I could add audio to posts was to make them a podcast. Um, and so it the, the thing ran as basically a, as a podcast. So it could be, t- you know, it could be found on RSS feeds and stuff like that. And so I would write the post, then I would record the audio, and then I would post it as a podcast. Now there was a, a good few months. I think I I kind of just fell off the fell off the Substack in January, and then this August I've posted loads of posts um, with audio. And the different and the reason the thing that has changed, I did a couple on the podcast, and the thing that basically changed is that um, you can now add a, an audio file as audio narration to Substack posts so that's what I've been doing and it's better actually because it seems to be get buried in people's spam folders a bit less um, than before so that's cool so I seem to be reaching more people if my stats are to be believed but that is the reason why I kind of am not posting little podcasts as posts anymore but then I got some feedback thank you Paul Cree saying oh that's how I found out. I find out about your stuff because I'm on the podcast feed and I listen to it as a podcast. And I thought, oh, right, okay. So I am kind of missing a few people here. So I had been playing with an idea in my head, and that was the shove that I needed, which was, hey, I can keep this little podcast feed going and have a podcast there, but what will it be? And the most natural thing felt like, okay, I can read some of these posts out, talk about them a bit more and talk about other stuff and I can do that once a month so it's like a little highlights thing and then people who want to listen to this as a podcast still get their little podcast albeit not at the same rate it would have been if it was me writing blogs um, but so if you are one of these podcasty listener people if you go on the Rusty Nile Substack, you will probably find posts that you have missed and um, that they, they all have something to listen to now my main reason for doing the, the main reason for doing the listening bit do, for doing the audio file was accessibility to make sure that someone who isn't able to read it can listen to it at least so I think doing it as a narration in a post I think helps so that's why um, I chose to go that way that's my main reason for doing it you might have noticed if you have been listening to these posts for the past few weeks um, since I've got back into it, is that the quality, the audio quality is a bit all over the shop as well. That's because it's the school holidays and I don't get a lot of space in this flat. Right now I'm in the quietest room in the flat, so there's occasionally a bit of noise. Um, it's a bit of a middle class area, right? So there's normally a loft conversion or an extension happening within a 100 metre radius in any direction. But right now there appears to be, it's like, Alexander the Great weeping because he ran out of lands to conquer. I do wonder if in my manner they've run out of lofts to convert. I don't know. But it's kind of relatively not noisy. I just get planes, the occasional helicopter, a bit of a boisterous fridge as well. Um, Anyway, but the family are out and I'm here able to record. Now, that might lead to another question before I get on with this, which is... um, Where's Rusty Sonnet's Nile if you're able to record? Because that is probably the most popular thing I've made, at least in the last 10 years. That's the thing that people genuinely seem to like and listen to in greater numbers than anything I actually create for myself. Rusty Sonnets, if you don't know, is a, is a podcast where I just take one old poem and I analyse it um, and just make the whole kind of thing about old poems more successful, more, more accessible to your casual reader and listener. Um, and it, I think it's going to come back, guys. I know I keep threatening this, but I, I seem to have a bit of space in my schedule where I can at least release one episode a month. So I can't make promises because whenever I make promises, I never fulfill them. But 
fingers crossed, I can do that. But for now, I think that's enough blathering about all this. I can always just talk about other reasons why I'm doing this later down the line, like the reasons why I've started my Substack again and stuff like that. But for now, I'm just going to read some posts and then um, and then I'll and then I might talk a little bit about stuff in between them. None of this is planned, so I don't even know what posts I'm going to read. Um, so my first one back actually, I won't. I'm not going to read it out. Was a little was a little blog type thing. I say blog type thing because um, before I was writing these, I, I was writing essays. I think I burnt myself out on Rusty Nile, the blog a bit because I was writing some quite dense essays and they take a lot more effort and a lot more research to just dash out a few times a week so much like rusty sonnets does actually rusty sonnets it's quite casual when i record it and fun but the really intense bit is the research especially when i'm doing whole books of paradise lost so um similarly i was writing very kind of quite meaty essays uh, meatier than your average blog post anyway so I've, ter- I've I've kind of been able to loosen up a little bit so you might notice that the content that I'm pushing out now isn't like these kind of quiet tight researched essays it's a bit more a bit little bit more churny let's just say um, and one thing I have been doing which I find quite interesting in in the poetry that I like is rather than going this is a blog and this is a poem oh, it's a poem today, today's a blog, this is my opinion on something. Um, I've kind of intentionally blurred the boundaries between what is a blog and what is a poem. And I think hopefully that's the key to understanding the kind of stuff I'm writing now because some people might think, what's now going, is this a poem, is this a blog? And the whole point is actually to, I don't know. I think it's a lot more interesting when I don't know, <laughs> if you know what I mean. So, in, so, so I wrote a first one, which I won't read out, which is about, um, which was about the James Webb Telescope, and the images that came back, and how I, I noticed a lot of commentary, which is like, "Ha, look how small and inconsequential we are," and how people seem to say that line like they're really tough, they 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 can totally handle their own inconsequentiality. Ha ha ha. Um, and I always found that a bit silly. I, I called it intellectual wanger waving in the blog. And so I, I made a little argument in that blog post about how actually um, I never really believe anyone when they think that they just they really do just by looking at some telescope images attain this rational distance from our human neuroses. I think that's that's just a load of old balls. I was really going through the internal Rolodex of stuff I want to say because I want to keep it relatively PG, 12A at the most. Um, and then um, and then the other thing that kind of comes from it is, is just actually the, this idea of the inconsequentiality of the human race. But ultimately, we're still looking out there and we're seeing nothing like us. You know, the very fact that we can conceive of our own inconsequentiality makes us pretty special. There's the paradox, eh? It's not really a paradox, but you get what I mean. Um... And, you know, we, we, we look out and we don't see anything like us. We don't see anything like our planet. Now, it might be that there are innumerable planets with more amazing, super amazing stuff going on on those planets um, than we'll ever know about, especially because of the speed of light and all that. They could be so far away that um, that civilization, if we did find a way of seeing it, might have vanished completely by the time the light travels from them to whatever telescope we send out to look at it. Um, you know, the whole point of this James Webb telescope is to actually look so far back that we can see the original condition of the universe if we stare back far enough. So anyway, that was that blog. And it's co- it was called, I'm not going to read it, it was called No, You Are Not an Inconsequential Blip Within the Vast Fabric of the Cosmos. And I think that the audio quality in that one is distinctly ropey because that was recorded in another room which is facing a road, which so it's noisier. And um, it was recorded via my big iPad because I couldn't even go. I couldn't basically set up my normal microphone. And I, it makes me laugh like the iPod. I'm not dissing. I know a lot of people would love to own an iPad Pro. So I, I totally get it. But just um, that's my main device that I work on. But um, they say how it has studio quality microphone. And I always find that funny. And I always feel like making the old dad joke. Oh, yeah. What's that then? A nail studio. <laughs> anyway. But I am going to read the next one. So the next one was written after a day out in Ruskin Park. So, you know, I'm doing a lot. During the six weeks of the holidays, I am Mr. Sort of stay-at-home dad. Because the missus is, is, even though she works from home, 
she works in my old office which is one of the reasons why I've not been as productive to be honest um, is that um, I, uh, I, I I go out with the kids and and so one I, I still kept up my haiku writing and um, the way I write haiku the way I prefer to write haiku is is one line which is called a monoku um, coined I've I heard that from Alan Summers who's well worth following on Twitter if you kind of search Alan Summers haiku then hopefully you'll 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 blunder upon him but really the interesting guy who just knows who's forgotten more about haiku than I will ever learn but I like the one line haiku um, I read a book by Hiroaki Sato which I recommend to a lot of people and it's a collection of his essays on haiku and so the way he translates haiku and he's one of the premier translators of haiku from Japanese to English and the way that Sato translates haiku is he translates them as one line and I kind of like how he translates them because he he leaves a feel of the original Japanese I think so there's there's almost only a trans a partial transfiguration transfigurization or is it transfiguration am I being like an American and sort of turning a noun into a verb or whatever and then just adding more syllables unnecessarily to it but um yeah there's the, the, he transfigures let's just say he doesn't transfigure them as much into lyrical english that's the only way i can put it there's almost like this sort of the oh this will sound insensitive and i mean this in the most complimentary way but the otherness of the japanese is i think slightly retained they're kind of slightly strange poems that don't quite fit into sort of the English language or the lyrical sensibilities of English and I think it's good to have it that way so that's the stuff that really influences me so I write these one-line haiku often when I'm about and about because I think haiku should be written in the moment I like the way that Basho and a few others wrote haiku so with Basho and his in particular his travel journals the haiku that he would share would be written while he was out and about but then he would frame them with paragraphs of, of prose that was often as poetic and interesting as the haiku um, afterwards, after the fact. So he would use almost that he would use the haiku as mnemonic devices for these paragraphs. But these paragraphs would also work as framing for the haiku. So, you know, I'd go out on a day out with the kids and I would do something similar. Or I'd write all these little mini monoku haiku and then I would um, come back and I and I wrote the blog around it. So I thought I'd read this one out. Ruskin Park Monaco. It's a well-worn opinion that writing poetry is not always good for your mental well-being. That may well be the case, but writing haiku has always been a boon to my mental health. All a haiku really requires is that you notice and occupy a moment in the world and snatch something from it. Focus on one image or sound and notice that image is obverse within its surroundings. Paddling pool ripples. Shadow of the hospital incinerator. I wonder what John Ruskin would have thought of the park that was named after him. Much like any other inner city green space, industrialisation looms at every extremity. It's not so much an escape from the clamour of city life as it is a recontextualization of it. Much like the two contrasting images within the haiku, the ideas of industry and nature cling together in restful unease within a city's parks. So it is with Ruskin Park, with the looming incinerator and helicopter pad of King's College Hospital on one side and the busy stretches of railway on the other. Haulage cars clank through, cargo of rust and graffiti. As far as writing haiku in English is concerned, the 575 syllable requirement acts as a set of training wheels. Most never get beyond thinking of a haiku as a 17-syllable epigram. Others, on understanding the differences in stress and rhythm between the Japanese and English languages, as well as learning the open, image-driven aspects of the form, begin to feel confidence in dropping some syllables here or there. English language haiku tend to pair away redundancy to the point where the images appear in the way that they do within experience, unanticipated, unasked for and fleeting. Dead insects bob about the shallows, stubborn daydreams. 
Once you stop finger counting the syllables and really focus on the images, the single line haiku or monoku becomes a natural development. As you probably already know, Japanese haiku are not split into three lines. Instead, the 575 division is implied within the rhythm and imagery of a single line with the cutting word or kireji denoting the shift between images. Um, I'm just going to cut in on myself here. The, um, the cutting word doesn't, it's normally actually borrowed, I think, from a particular set of words. You see, this is where my knowledge is already failing me. And it just doesn't really have an English equivalent. So what you will find, especially in an English monoku, is our good friend the dash or some other kind of form of punctuation. Or if you're doing a five seven, you know, not five seven five, but a three line haiku, then the line break can often function as that little cutting away as well. But being that the language, the, the, the Japanese haiku is in one line, it's the cutting word that normally modulates the shift between images. Okay, where am I? It's easy to get caught up in the idea of a proper haiku, that's in scare quotes, but when seeing all the rules and conventions that surround the Japanese form, as well as all the famous breaks in those conventions, I prefer to write something that simply has the feel of a haiku to me. My pale shins meet the midday sun, twitching butterfly. The haiku also tends to squarely place itself within the realm of nature, whereas the senryu operates from a more human perspective. The inner city park may ape the hues of nature with its long lawns and flowering shrubs, but it bustles with the hubbub of humanity. Silly, bald white men glug cans of strong beer with their shirts off. Hospital workers smoke in the shade of peeling plane trees. A dog that looks like a cross between a bull terrier and a German shepherd bounds past me and my kids with a thick stick lodged within its jaws. It revels in its power, the torque of its bite matching the explosiveness of its sprint. The owner inspects some wild flowers many feet back. I cannot tell if her control of the animal is absolute or non-existent as I place my palms on my children's shoulders. Between the pit bull and the squirrel, a blip of tranquility. While visiting the bandstand on the way home, I try using my phone's photosphere function, the one that stitches lots of images into a 360 replication of the scene. The app isn't working, so I end up with some fractured collages of floorboards instead. I like it though. By many accounts, the brain doesn't smoothly reassemble all of its fragmentary sensory information into a smooth, continuous representation. It's more that we delude ourselves that the fragments are part of some smoother continuum. Again, it's the haiku that seems to get closest to capturing the sharp, immediate sheen of each moment. When I write them, I feel as if I'm somehow closer to the truth. So that was an entire, you know, it was a blog post, but it was just as much a prose poem, I think, with, with you know, it could, it, it could almost be a series of haibun. If you don't know what a haibun is, a haibun is normally a, a sort of a prose paragraph followed by a poem. I like all this stuff. I like the stuff that, that veers between prose and poetry. And that's kind of led the sensibility of me going back to this to this to my blog to my substack because I wanted to just get back to writing and putting stuff out but to not feel too precious about it and to feel that I, it's okay to fail and for people to not know what the hell I'm talking about and to ultimately to try and be at peace with the idea that I could be sending these things out and people would either ignore it or maybe even ridicule it but for me it was more about if I'm I get an urge to create I then have to create and then I have to share it. And I like what I like about the Substack is it gives me the opportunity to do that as quickly as possible. And on a future episode of this, I'll talk about the kind of mentality of the poetry scene where it's seen as the greatest. Um, you know, if you if you write something, then you need to sit on it. You need to workshop it. Maybe you need to send it to some magazines and stuff like that. And it, and it needs to be like this big guilty secret or some clandestine operation. Um right until the moment when it ends up in a magazine that 20 people subscribe to and someone takes a photograph of it, normally the author, and puts it on Twitter. Um, and then it goes full circle. It needs to, like, you know, it's almost like in order to be to be um, thought of seriously as a poem, 
before being shared on social media. It needs to go through this entire process. It's almost like sort of laundering, laundering money. So let me let me jump on to the next one. Um, so my so so that was my my mindset, and it's I think I think it's kind of served me quite well so far. Now, one of the things I thought of was to that one of the ways to motivate myself was uh, I'm going to get an idea pop up in my head and I'm just going to write it now at the moment I'm trying to stick to two a week so two posts a week meaning it gives me a bit of leeway one if I've had a busy week and I'm not really writing a lot of stuff and there's been a couple of days where I have just opened up rather than writing this thing in 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 Scrivener and giving it a little bit of a you know a bit spending a few days working on it and then posting it on the Substack. Some of these sometimes have been written on the day straight into the Substack editor, and it's quite fun to do that. And I have no idea. Obviously, I won't know until about a week later, at least, that I might have just written a load of old rubbish. But um, but but I, I quite enjoy it now. Um, but the way the the mindset I went into this, at least at the beginning, of trying to get back into being regular on my Substack, was to trust in the fact that I will get an idea in my head at some point during the day often when I'm out and about down the park with the kids or something like that and once this idea is in my head I'll kind of recognize it and as soon as that happens that's it I've got to go home and write it not right away but I've got to keep that idea in my head and at some point sit down write the bugger out and so that's what I did and um and so I don't know what the backstory is for this one but I had this I've been writing about angels a little bit, haven't I? Quite a bit. There seems to have my my ex-Catholicism, my old Catholic upbringing is rearing its head in my unconscious quite a lot by the look of it. Um, So I wrote something called On Replacing the Angel and Devil on My Shoulders with a Gargoyle and Butterfly. Now, I don't know when this idea popped into my head. I might have just been walking to the supermarket or whatever. And maybe I was thinking about I don't know, some stuff like the the relationship between experience and the mind and the dichotomy I was making of that. And then that just gave birth to these two images. And then I thought about the old dichotomy, which was perhaps my old Catholic dichotomy, which is just good and evil, angel on one shoulder, devil on the other. So being replaced by this, this, I I know there's not really, (laughs) you know, there's not really such thing as a binary in Buddhism or or in Hindu sort of non-dualism. But I thought of an equivalent of that. Maybe just that's the ex-Catholic in me. I just have to even look at something that's completely monistic and replace it with about with a binary, with a dualistic idea. But that's what this was really about. Almost, it's really about uh, one of my favourite things I used to say um, to illustrate this idea. Sometimes of of that sometimes what we see as a binary is not really a binary. It's a, it's more like a mutual antagonism, which is one thing. I know that's quite wordy and whatever, but I find that way about, I feel that way about the two-party system in a lot of countries where it just seems to go from one to the other, from one to the other. And really, you take a wider view and you find that these two contrasting alternatives are almost just part of the same thing. You know, they're part of the same thing. It is like yin and yang, where the yin and yang is still one circle that contains the two things. And I find a lot of systems that seem to be apparent binaries when you step back a bit from them, you see that actually no, they're kind of part of the same thing. They're they're they're, they're contained opposites. So, um, my favourite example of a contained opposite is is if um, was the, the the example of someone asking me, "Are you a Beatles or an Elvis man?" and me replying, "Actually, I'm more of a Johnny Cash or David Bowie man." So, but hopefully that illustrates that idea. You know what I mean? Which is like, I don't accept that dichotomy. I have a different dichotomy. Okay. Enough, enough rambling. On replacing the angel and devil on my shoulders with a gargoyle and butterfly. No matter how often you find yourself feeling at one with the fabric of a cosmos, you'll still end up nuts deep in a dichotomy a few hours later. So I decided to choose my dichotomy. Childhood indoctrination lumbered me with an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other. I grew to require a dichotomy that chimed with my atheistic Buddhism. So I plucked my angel and devil from my shoulders, packed them into a Moses basket and left it inside the confession booth of a local church. I then installed my new shoulder dichotomy, a gargoyle and a butterfly. 
The gargoyle doesn't sit on my shoulder. He grows out of it. Much like how the gargoyles of a gothic cathedral are hewn from the same stone as the building, my gargoyle is made of skin, bone, gristle and hair. The muscles that bulge within his squatting thighs are purely ornamental. He never moves. Even his words, which are constant and manifold, appear directly in my mind rather than rising from his sneering rictus grin. The butterfly doesn't talk at all, which makes sense. How could one begin to imagine what the speech of a butterfly would sound like? It revels in its existence and its lightness. It is so slight that it constantly melds into the moment it occupies. The colours and markings on its wings are always shifting in response to its surroundings. It accepts everything. It's tethered to my shoulder by a very thin cable or thread, like fibre optic spider silk. That said, the butterfly seems to be able to flutter as far or as high as it wishes without the slightest tautness registering on the thread. They both serve a purpose. The gargoyle is great as a problem solver and at remembering things. He retains all of the necessary facts and is good at summarising all of the available options when the need for a decision arises. The problem is that he never stops looking for a problem to solve and the facts that he so effortlessly spews often snowball into epic narratives, grand theories and entrenched opinions. There's always a point where his reliability becomes a kind of stuckness. He is a gargoyle, after all. It's easy to say that I should just be the butterfly, in the same way that one is meant to only heed the angel, but the free, fluttering bliss of the butterfly is just another subtle inertia. If I stumbled upon a serial killer's basement, the butterfly would simply delight in the grime and viscera, flitting between the filthy hues of the floorboards and the bright red of arterial spray. It would revel in equal love and sympathy for the killer and their quarry. It is the gargoyle that howls in moral revulsion and recalls the quickest means of escape. Even my poems come from the gargoyle, albeit when he's most sympathetic and attentive to the movements of the butterfly. It's not so much that he isn't good with words as it is that he never bloody stops. The one difference between the old dichotomy and the new one is the role that I play within it. With the angel and the devil, my role was key. I was the chooser, the actor, the moral agent. But with the gargoyle and butterfly, there really doesn't seem to be a role for me at all. If anything, I am a figurehead, more constitutional monarch than commander-in-chief. There's a fair chance that neither of them noticed me at all. To them, I am a human face to point towards other human faces with their own user illusions and tortured dichotomies. There's an irony, of course, that in choosing a new dichotomy, I also choose my own marginalisation. But they're better at the job than the old trio of angel, devil and moral agents. I just let them get on with it. It's all out of my hands from now on. What is it that the Christians call it? Oh yes, grace. Can you hear the plane? I've got to learn to just let the plane happen. When I'm recording this thing, sometimes I stop. When I'm recording the posts, I have to stop and wait for it to go. Wait for the silence. And then back in. I can't be asked. Can't be bothered. Okay. So that was my, my angel and butterfly post. Um, I think, yeah, hopefully... Maybe it made no sense to you whatsoever, but maybe the in images were interesting or whatever. But it, I guess for me, it really is about the kind of the the um, the, the the freshness of experience represented by the butterfly, and almost like the sort of the 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 the, the neutral quality of experience as well, the mor morally neutral aspect of this lightness of experience, and then this and then the mind, which is just totally encumbered and weighed down with so many things kind of following on from experience and and how a lot of meditative practices are almost about banishing the mind making the mind go forever and I, I'm really I just think that's a load of old rubbish I think it's more about a good balance between the mind and experience and um, and trusting sometimes in experience and that pureness of experience but not getting completely lost in it. This is something I'm going to probably talk about quite a lot, um, especially in some upcoming work that I have. But for now, I'm not trying to be anyone's guru and long may that continue. Okay, um, 
So the next one I wrote was another another one of these images, and it's funny that the most sort of watched, the most read posts in my Substack are ones which sort of have something negative about Twitter in the title. It's like everyone uses Twitter and hates Twitter, and the easiest click bite clickbait to write is to kind of write something bad about twitter or escaping twitter or quitting twitter because i think everyone wants to touch grass everyone wants to feel free in their life um and everyone wants to quit social media and we opened up pandora's box sometime around 2005 and we've kind of surrendered our minds now and um and there's nothing more annoying than someone who has quit social media as well and is just telling us how wonderful their life is i don't think it's as simple as that but certainly we want to find that balance, don't we? So, yes, this is one of those tw- posts with quitting Twitter in the title, which just acts as ma- just it wasn't intentional clickbait. Um, and the way I wrote this I, is I, I did start off writing something. Um, but again, the idea that came into my head was the idea of not going on Twitter. But every time I had an idea about writing something um on twitter i would write it in a leather tome as well and i've kind of done this before as one of my strategies not with a big leather tome but writing in a notes app so if i had a big idea for a tweet rather than sharing it on twitter and my expectation of what what might happen with this tweet i just write it in a note app and often that was enough for me to not post it and me to just stay off twitter a bit longer so um that was quite nice and then actually with the note app it encourages me to carry on writing something instead and to elaborate my ideas to create a piece of writing which I always find healthier so this was written with that image and it's interesting because again I talk about the difference between sort of blogs and poems and stories Um, I'm not a story writer I'm not a fiction writer Um, if I can call but sometimes I lapse into storytelling Um, and I I don't know why I I won't even dignify this I'm not saying the, the blog is bad I'm just saying I don't see myself as a writer of, of of narrative fiction. And if I do write narrative fiction, I'll just call it a yarn. Feels no different to something I might spin off at the pub if I still went to pubs. You know what I mean? Or to my bored wife. I don't know. Anyway, this one's called On Quitting Twitter to Write My Opinions in a Weighty Leather Tome. There was once a time where opinions weren't as big a part of our identities. Sure, you might notice the brand of tabloid that your workmate pulled out during lunch break and if you followed them to the pub in the evening you might catch an earful of their take on the state of the world. If anything, we had a word for someone who was always offering their unsolicited opinion. A bore. And if they were particularly outspoken or impassioned about their opinions, we called them a bigot or a blowhard. But that all changed with social media, especially the bird sites. Now your opinion was essential in order to show what kind of person you were. A bit like how the way you dressed and acted as a Gen X teen was dictated by the kind of music that you listened to. The weirdest thing about it was the tone that people used, a sort of assumption that their dictums carried weight and consequence, more Moses on Mount Sinai than Zarathustra in the town square. It's always interesting to ask who do they imagine they are talking to when reading an opinionated tweet. Most genuinely seem to think that they are addressing a crowd that have been camped outside their door for days. And there I was, spouting my hot takes as much as the previous idiot. So instead of quitting social media like a wise person would, I decided to buy a massive leather-bound tome with a large brass lock on the side and write my opinions in that instead. If I found an opinion newly hatched inside my head, I'd unlock the tome, turn to the next empty page, dip my quill in ink and write. How do you make a middle-class person think they're Malcolm X? Dress them in lycra. Then I'd gently blow onto the ink and let it dry, close and lock it up before going about my day. I have to admit that there was a lot about cyclists, but from the viewpoint of a pedestrian rather than a driver, so I was definitely punching upwards. It worked too. I soon stopped going onto social media completely. I was hitting deadlines, feeling happier and spending more time outdoors. In turn, the trips to the leather tome became less frequent until it remained locked up in the loft for years. I took up jogging too, until my joints started playing up, so I I bought myself a brand new bike. At first, I was fine going out in my everyday clothes, but it would get awkward and sweaty, so I, I thought I might try on some Lycra gear, and it was surprisingly comfortable. 
As the months went by, I met other cycling enthusiasts and they told me that one of the best places to connect with other cyclists was on Twitter. By then I'd forgotten my old password so I started a new account that was more in tune with my new interests. Wow, I didn't realise how much clout I had. I was getting thousands of likes and hundreds of follows, especially whenever I tweeted about how annoying pedestrians were. A lot of those pedestrians were office worker types from middle class backgrounds, so I was definitely punching upwards. My most popular tweet was, How do you make a middle class commuter think they're Malcolm X? Let them step into a cycle lane while scrolling through their Insta feed. The missus wasn't happy with it though. I was spending more time on my bike than I was spending with her. Whenever she tried to talk to me about it, I'd end up scrolling through my Twitter mentions instead of properly listening to her. It might just be the case that I'd nodded obliviously through her threats and ultimatums. One night, after I'd got in from a three-hour bike ride, showered and doused in a deep, dreamless sleep, she used my finger to unlock my phone, crept up to the loft and picked the lock of my tome of forgotten opinions. By morning, she had photographed every single cyclist cuss that I'd scrawled with my bespoke hate quill. She then posted every photo as a long thread on my new Twitter account. I was finished. Online and offline. Divorce. My social influence depleted. I couldn't even go cycling without bellows of hypocrite and Malcolm X. Issuing from car window and roadside alike. If there was a plus side to all this, it was the death of a conviction that I was some kind of moral authority, that my opinions were nothing more than the windbag bleatings of an unremarkable bipedal omnivore. I finally accepted myself as just another flawed human. A flawed, deluded human. On an e-scooter. So that's that one. Um... You might, might notice that really another reason for me recording this, I'm going to do one more and then we're done, all right? But one reason for me recording this is blatantly, oh, look, I'm doing a gig. I'm, not do I'm doing a gig where I'm not getting yanked off stage after 15 minutes. It's like my own little one hour spoken word show once a month that no one's going to listen to. Right, so um, last one. That was the promise, wasn't it? And then I'll, 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 as I said, I'm not going to finish with all my excuses of what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. You know what? The person who's probably least, most interested in any of that is me. It's just all self-justification. And here I am. You're listening to me. I'm blabbering on. We're weirdly connected in our two different points of time. Um, that's all we need in this life. So let's not ruin it by overanalyzing it. Right, um, last one. I think I'm going to do the other, you know, I, 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 I've got a choice between two here. There's the other angel one, and then there's the notes from a seaside, English seaside break. And you know what? I was planning on doing the angel's nose, um, which is an interesting group of pro. It's, it's, it's prose poetry, ultimately. It's these really strange prose paragraphs. It's something that I wasn't completely aware of what I was writing. Um, but I think it's a really interesting piece, and, um, and it's well worth going on to my substack and reading it that's what i'd say or listening to it i have no idea if it's one of those rubbish recordings or not oh yeah some of these recordings as well i recorded um with the microphone in the office because the missus was off and so i i kind of but it, it might sound strange in a different way which is there's not a lot of background noise but i sound a bit nasal and the reason why is because i i turned the mic right down shoved the pop guard literally right in front of my face so i'm not popping too much although there's still lots of pops and then just I was right nuzzled up ASMR against the microphone. Um, but it was the only way I could really kind of use it to kind of get the sound where there wasn't too much noise from the road. Um, but it still sounded weird. So I don't want to do that again. But um, next school holiday, I think the sound quality will drop again. And that's the reason why. Anyway, so the Angels Nose, I think it's an interesting one. I don't want to say too much about it. But I'm, I'm veering towards the English seaside break, which is um, which is which is uh, the last last one I wrote. No, it wasn't. It was the second last one I wrote. Um, the one I did last, I for, I've forgotten it already. It was that impressive. Um, was one about, what was it about? Let's have a look. Um, Holiday Blues or The Death of Melancholy. Right. That was one which is kind of, yeah, I guess it's trying to be some kind of informational blog, but it's uh, as well as a kind of confessional 
autobiographical thing about um about crying about crying after i dropped um my youngest at nursery for the first time ever and had come home to a an empty flat for the first time in about six years because i basically always had a little person climbing all over me at some point during the last six years before that and all of a sudden i was there in this flat and um i just burst into tears in this empty flat and i still don't know why i burst into tears i think it was a lot of conflicting things but then since then i've i've I, there's a scientist a, a, a psychologist whose name is barrett and i've forgotten her first name but a psychologist by the surname of barrett and she has become quite prominent with her work on emotions and about how emotions are much more an interpretive act and there's a lot of other research that backs this up as well where emotions are more almost like a narrative that we put on things rather than something so when we have all these separate emotions um in a physiological sense a lot of the time they don't look different to other emotions so something that might seem like agitation or excitement um actually looks the same um, and also sometimes they vary between people as well, these emotional states physiologically. So b- emotions are more like a mental tag that we put on things. And then that will that coupled with that physical insensi- physical sensation will influence our behavior. So that was that one. That was the last one I wrote. Um, and then there's the angel's nose, which I, I do really like. And I'm torn whether to read that one or not. But I think notes from an English seaside break I'm going to read. Which one would I be most likely to read at a gig? I think I'd read the Seaside Break one because it's got some funny bits in. Um, or in, intended funny bits in, at least. Uh, this was, I, I went on a on a holiday, on a break to a holiday resort, which I've done a number of times with my family in the past few years. I've often enjoyed these because it's just nice to be by the sea. And um, among working class people, it sounds weird, I told you already, I live in quite a middle class area. And sometimes I can just feel very, I don't know, any working class person or work, person who's had a working class upbringing who finds themselves in a lot of middle class places like I do professionally and in, in my life, maybe I am middle class now, um, I find that it's quite, I don't know, it's, you feel like a bit of a class traitor in one way, but at the same time you, you do definitely have that feeling of not belonging um, and just people assuming that you're some kind of, um, I'm going to use the term oik, it's a deeply classist term, but I think it's appropriate. Um, so going to a place full of working class people would feel like a break, you know what I mean? And I would find myself <laughs> consciously acting out more my working classness as well, as I as I would have done when I was back in the back in the manual jobs that I used to do. Um, so it was quite a relief in that sense. But this time I've got to say I just became a massive classist. So there we go, became the biggest class traitor ever. Ever this time, I'm not sure why. Maybe it's just because I've done, I did this so many years in a row. Had a bit of a break due to COVID. Went back to this place, and it, you, it won't take a lot of research to work out where I went. But I'm not going to say it anyway. Um, so this is notes from an English seaside break. You almost forgot they existed, but here they are in all their bawdy, tattooed magnificence. The English. A few days among working class people puts me at ease. Respite from the slight tension I almost forget when I'm in my zone 2 suburban day to day. I also know that in two days time I'll be galloping back towards the indifference of the gentry, begging to be patronised again. The sight and smell of the sea from a balcony. It's all I need. That ineffable freshness. The irrefutable horizon and the possibility of France. You'd never guess that they pumped raw sewage into it a week ago. Windsurf sails pattern blue ripples, forgiving our trespasses. At a swimming pool, a fat Batman sign on a man's forearm turns out to be a Batman vs Superman logo that he's had tattooed over with black ink. I wonder if he saw it at the cinema, loved it, got the tattoo, then watched it again on video and realised he'd made a terrible mistake. Either way, this is culture. You can tell I'm a proper Gen Xer by me saying, watching it on video. Does anyone say what, you know, like the, the sort of like you watch it in a cinema and then there's like and the release window's got smaller now, isn't it? So like, what do we call it now when you watch it on your iPad or your phone or your TV? Do you stream it? Do you just say you stream it now? It's released on streaming. It's digital or is, or is it like the cognitive fossil of that old phrase video? Is that still relevant or do people think 
VHS. Now videos YouTube and stuff as well. So maybe people are thinking I watched it that he watched it pirated on YouTube. Answers on a postcard, please. <laughs> Another antiquated reference. Anyway, where was I? Batman man at the swimming pool with a, with, um, a Batman versus Superman logo that it had coloured in. That's right. Okay, so. The circus veers from genuine spectacle to full-on Phoenix Knights without the irony. The Cuban acrobats that made me gasp in delight exit the stage to make way for four scantily dressed white women in tribal chief headdresses with their tribute to Native American culture. They actually said Native American Indian culture. Um, there's a, I can't remember where I heard it, the old phrase, which is um, First Nation people prefer to be called Indians than Native Americans because Native Americans sort of, it's like America is the thing that happened to them. And, and secondly, Indian is kind of a testament to the stupidity of the white man because the white people thought they were in India when they first landed there. Anyway, okay. Um, yeah, this, this, this circus is always dodgy. I mean, the, the, the actual acts are amazing. As you know, as they as they are, you just watch people do things with their bodies um, that 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 most of us can't do, and I just I love it. I love that, but um, then it would just be ruined by kind of like a racist clown or something. This clown wasn't as racist this time. I'll say it this time. It was the ringmaster who uh, brought out the tribute to Native American culture. But a previous clown at this circus in previous years did an actual kind of like um, joke um, joke Japanese name with like hands be- between hands clasped together and squinted eyes in a full-on sort of yellow face moment but the last time i saw it which i i felt like complaining and then i didn't anyway um let's move on from the racist circus shall we okay to the other stage entertainment at the main stage a five minute video reminds us how much of a big deal stephen mulhern is and then the stage dividers slide open to reveal stephen mulhern Nobody here asked to be born, and most of them are knackered. It's been a while since I felt that particular strain of fatigue within my bones. I quit the blue-collar graft when I was still young enough to charge for the coast some weekends to get proper bladdered. In another life, would blue-collar Daddy Nile be plonked on a plastic chair with his brawn and his bones blinking at the sea? Would he down his pint or take it slow? Would he still feel the itch of poetry? Stephen Mulhern steps off the stage to be followed by a video of Stephen Mulhern telling us that his magic sets will be available at the concession stand and you can get them signed by Stephen Mulhern. I take a photo of my wife taking a photo of a Helter Skelter. Beautiful things require no real effort. My youngest is completely enraptured by Stephen Mulhern and I begin to regret my cynical ambivalence towards Stephen Mulhern. Occasional doom scrolls, a last hurrah for leisure before the energy companies start shaking their collection tins. I go on Wikipedia to see if Stephen Mulhern is married. I'm actually saying Stephen Mulhern in that way, by the way, but it probably sounds like I've dubbed it over myself. I haven't. I haven't thought this far about my delivery in the style. Anyway, my eldest loves to daydream. She keeps returning to the carousel, not for the ride itself, but for the gentle spinning and the visions it conjures. I've been intermittent fasting for five months, but have decided to keep my eating window open throughout the holiday. Now I can't get to sleep because my stomach is still digesting food. That, and I'm terrified that I will dream of... Stephen Mulhern I hope the kids screaming outside got captured in that dramatic pause before I said Stephen Mulhern because that would be perfect. Obviously, I'd have ruined it now by talking about it. Every time I get a hankering to live by the coast, I remind myself that I'd have to swap squirrels for seagulls. Here comes the candle to light you to bed. Here comes the Mulhern to chop off your head. He didn't do any guillotine tricks on the show he did a levitating child one though okay the sign at the bar says there is no costa coffee i'm filled with hope before i realize that costa coffee is functioning as a metonym for all coffee the last thing i see in the town center before the train station is a poster for an elvis tribute act my first thought is that he's a bit advanced in age and girth to be attempting the all leather 68 look 
My second thought is why the hell not? You go for it, mate. I'm wise enough to know that misanthropy is just another form of suffering and not the empowerment it presents itself to be. It burns out soon enough and a gentle empathy follows, not unlike a sea breeze. So that's all of my my things I'm going to read out for today. And I, I don't really have much to say coming out of this. I have no idea how long I've been talking for, but I'm going to do one of these a month, hopefully. Right now, I think I can just about handle, on top of my other stuff that I'm procrastinating about, um, the two posts a week and the one recording a month. And not care whether any of it becomes popular or loved or not it's just something I feel like I need to do and, and and as I said already I think this this little podcast thing is actually doubling my need to do a gig after I create you can tell that I'm just nestling into my introvert existence since the pandemic something I might talk about in the future and uh, and just trying to create and put stuff out in a way that doesn't involve me meeting too many other human beings um, which is weird isn't it you're probably asking about my open mic poetry unplugged if you know me as well I have no idea what's going on sorry um, it will return to the Poetry Cafe when it's safe to return to the Poetry Cafe. When I say safe, I don't just mean for us. I mean for people with disabilities and elders and anyone else who might be more at risk if they catch COVID. Um, and that's the way it goes. I know a lot of spoken word nights are running and stuff like that. And good for you, you young, able-bodied spoken word Adonises or Adonai or whatever the female equivalent is. I uh, don't think it's safe to put everyone in the basement yet. Sorry. Okay. Um, and um, I've no idea how the Poetry Society feel about it because I haven't chatted to them since December. But hopefully I'll have a chat with them about it soon. Um, I don't think I'll be running it anywhere else. I definitely won't be running it in a non-accessible venue. Um, so yeah, that's my very serious bit at the end. I, I'm going to stop. If there's anything I can talk about, I can save it to next month. Um, how is this for you? Get let, let me know. Um, so yeah, as I said, if you want to read the blogs, they're there. I think it'll be Tuesdays and Thursdays on Substack and then um, possibly first Sunday of the month, I'll post the podcast. So going over what I wrote the previous month and chatting about stuff. But um, yeah, I hope you're doing well. Feel honestly, uh, I, I cannot. And if you are reading the blog and if you are um, enjoying it, all the podcast um I, I just want to reiterate that um as much as i say i'm sending this out there to the indifference of the world um a little bit of callback from the world whether it's a little comment underneath or even just hitting a little heart icon on the blog if you're on substack and logged in um really make me make, make, makes a world of difference to me i i want to know people like this as much as i try to act like it doesn't matter so thank you very much and um have a good one bye bye